Hello and welcome to the Relationship Breakthrough Show from Aligned With Love. I'm Matt. And I am Rebecca. This is the place for people to have a magical, loving, intimate relationship. Thanks for joining us now. Let's get started. One of the most common challenges when relationships are not working is that communication can seem broken. Maybe we have the same argument again and again, or maybe we never even seem to get to the key point. What is really going on? And is it really the communication that's the problem or could it be something else? If you ever feel that communication is your challenge and maybe even that everything ends in an argument, you're gonna to want to find out the five steps for overcoming reactivity with the incredible Lair Torrance. Lair is a clinically trained psychotherapist, mindfulness-based family therapist, a best-selling author and contributing columnist at Inc.com. He has just authored a new book titled The Practice of Love, Break Old Patterns, Rebuild Trust and Create Connection That Lasts. So firstly, well, welcome, Lair, to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate being here. Great to have you with me here today. And um, the first question I'd love to ask, Lair, is um, what do you see as the link between the arguments and conflict that people always tend to have, you know, when the relationship's not working, and our level of reactivity or being triggered? What, what do you see the connection there? <clears throat> well, you know, one of the first steps in any Western clinical modality uh, when it comes to couples work, you know, they have the big book of couples therapy that they made all of us read and learn and understand. And in that book, they have a ton of different models. But to a model within that book, it says to de-escalate the couple cycle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's all well and good. De-escalating the couple cycle, getting people to calm down and to, to speak uh, more kindly, more gently from, you know, a, a more compassionate side of self is, is easy enough to do in the office by and large, unless a couple is particularly toxic. Um, the real trouble I had was in finding a way to get couples to deescalate so that they could have, um, evocative, challenging conversations out in their lives. Obviously, you know, they can't stay in therapy forever. Um, and I, can't go to their homes and, and referee there. And so one of the issues early in my career was I was doing really, really well using all of these Western modalities, I statements, nonviolent communication, all of that stuff that worked great in the office, but couples were having a hard time implementing them out in their lives because look, you know, you're heavily invested. A lot of emotions come up, your scar tissue comes up from, from your past. And so all of these things are sort of there in that sort of Venn diagram, as I like to call it, uh, the Venn diagram of your conversation. You have two circles intersecting. One is you, one is your partner, that shared area. We need to know what's going on in there. And one of the first things that I implemented was something that I was actually using in my men's anger management. I, I was the only man in my internship. And so I immediately became the head of the men's anger management department. And I needed to find a unique tool that these guys could use. I was working with, you know, Wall Street brokers uh, in Manhattan, um, and they were unable to regulate their nervous systems. And so I, I was digging around, and I'd, I'd done a lot of studying of Buddhist uh, psychology through through my uh, training. And so I brought mindfulness uh, to to, to uh, a very long-winded way to answer your question. I use mindfulness with couples. I then brought, brought it from my men's anger management over into my couples. And I use that as a sort of 
onboarding process to a ramp, if you will, to better communication, having each person sort of titrate and regulate their, their nervous systems themselves got them looking internally rather than pointing the finger, well, I'll do better when you do better is typically how that goes. Um, but I, when I got them looking at themselves and looking at themselves internally from a mindfulness perspective, they could take that mindful breath. They could de-escalate that rapidly increasing four, five, six, seven on the Richter scale and begin to calm themselves. And it was so simple and, and effective that my couples were actually using it out in their lives to regulate themselves and to you know enter the door of conversation, if you will, the door of better communication through the mindfulness door. And it was really helpful. Mm, I see. So you found the mindfulness to be a real game changer, did you, Lair, in terms of helping people contain that level of reactivity? Absolutely. I'll go as far as to say I don't know how any form of um, Western clinical modality actually works without mindfulness. Because if you're not aware of yourself and what you're doing, then you're just reacting. And so what my, what mindfulness really does for that reactive person, and we can all be reactive and we can all have our feelings hurt and we can all get angry, is it gets us out of our knee-jerk responses. It's a powerful thing, right? Our knee-jerk responses, you know, I always say our partners are uniquely designed to hurt us, right? Our partners can often feel like the most dangerous people in the world because we're, we, we love them so much and um, they know us so well. And, and so, you know, we can become reactive. And so to get couples out of that knee-jerk response doesn't mean you change how you feel. And this is an important point. Our feelings are what they are. They come up as they do. And, and we all have awful thoughts and awful feelings. We're human beings. It just happens. The important piece here is to, to notice those thoughts and feelings and then to choose mindfully and with awareness, like, okay, what do I want to put out there into the world? What do I want to put in? I know what I just thought and I know what I was about to say and I know what I just felt. But how can I skillfully and mindfully impart what I'm actually feeling to my partner? And so that's, mm, that's where de-escalation and really connective conversations start, I think. It, I'd love to talk more about this. I'm so passionate myself, Lair, as you know, about mindfulness and, you know, with the background yeah. that I've had. Um, and also that I have regularly have conversations with people where they can be a bit resistant to anything that sounds mm -hmm. a bit Eastern or spiritual. And I, I'd, I'd love to get your thought, Lair, on how good can people expect things to get if they don't want to think about any of this like mindfulness type practices that we're talking about what's the best we can expect if we don't oh man like <clears throat> you know that's a tough question it's a good question um it dovetails on so many of the practices that i have in my in my book the least the, the last practice um and the practice that i call the common denominator practice is personal responsibility and so I will get people who will say, you know, you know what, man, I, I've been through your book or I've been through this process. It's just not for me. I don't want to pay attention to my thoughts and feelings. I'm just me. I don't want to look at the part of me. This is another one of the practices that comes to the table during conversations or the narrative that I'm, I just don't want to do that. And so it's not really about getting that guy to do better because what he's saying is I don't want to. One of the tenets of my practice is really the only thing you need is to want to. Um, if someone doesn't want to change, how are we doing? And so it becomes incumbent upon that person's partner as an example. 
to decide what are you going to do. And I had this happen not too long ago where that exact thing came to the door. We had been working for several months on these five practices that I have. And they came in, they sat down, and the wife said to, to me, or said to her husband, well, do you want to tell him? Pointing to me. And he said, fine, I'll tell him. He's like, I don't want to do these things anymore. I'm not doing it. It's too much. Mm. And she said, what am I supposed to do with that? And I said, well, he's telling you he's not going to change. He's not going to do the things that make you feel loved and cared about. He's not going to watch his mouth or the things that come out of it. He's not going to take any responsibility. And for me, where there's no responsibility taken for something as simple, mindfulness is not easy. It, it, it's simple. It's just not always easy to, to, to do it. Um, where are we? If, you, if you're not going to take responsibility for yourself, um, for me, where there's no responsibility taken, there's no relationship to be had. And mm -hmm. so the thing I told this woman, I said, look, you have a choice in this moment. You can re realign your, your expectations of this person and accept him for who he says he's going to be. Or you can pack your stuff or you can pack his stuff. There's three options. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me kind of shocked. I said, I'm sorry, I, I'm not going to candy coat this for, for clients and tell them that's anything other than you need to be worth that person's personal responsibility. If someone's saying they're not going to own their stuff and they're not going to be mindful and aware of the things that they're doing and saying, how are we doing? And so some people think that's kind of a hard line, but try it. Try being in a relationship where someone is totally unaware. Mm. Try being in a relationship where someone is absolutely mindless <clears throat> in all of the things that they do and say tell me which one's harder mm, that's absolutely that's a great point and it also um connects with another question i wanted to come on to where um yeah. you know around this whole area of personal responsibility uh, a question that we get mm -hmm. all the time and i guess you've probably come across this as well is that look i really want to work on this i want to make the relationship better that's what i want to take responsibility at least for my bit of it but my partner mm -hmm. isn't so keen. What can I do? Mm -hmm. How can I engage my partner more effectively? Any thoughts around that, please? Yeah, you know, this is, if you're in a boat at sea, you got to have two oars in the water. Um, and so for me with that client, I'm like, why are you doing so much of this person's work? You know, and we, we get very close to the slippery slope of, of um, of uh, uh, you know, doing way way more of our, of our partner's work, um, and uh, you know that partner needs to put their oar in the water. And so my question for that client is probably less about their relationship and more about codependence for them. Mm -hmm. um, and and you know I get it. Look, relationships ending is sad. It can be heartbreaking. And, and, I, and I get that. I see it all the time. I've had it happen to me. For sure, I've had my heart broken a number of times. I have equal number of people writing me later saying, who say, my God, thank you for helping us save our marriage, as I do for people saying, oh my God, thank you for helping me get out of that relationship because that person was taking no responsibility. Mm. So if you have to you know, come at it sideways, if you have to you know, put it in a, in a, I don't know, if you have to conjole or beg or plead with your partner to do their work or to do the work around your relationship that you think ha needs to happen, then I'm not sure that's your person. And I know, again, that's another hard line, but I think relationships and love need to be a practice, right? We, we, if we want to do anything well, we should, we should seek to do that thing well and practice the fundamentals of that thing. Mm. I say, 
the way you love your partner should be you should be so good at it you can list it on your resume as a special skill next to like karate and breakdance fighting um that you 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 uh you should want to be excellent at that and so if your partner comes to you and says hey i really think we need to read this book or go to that seminar or go to that couple's therapist and your answer is yeah no nah, it's not for me I, I got a question, the, the logic behind that. Your, your partner's saying like, our relationship is you know, in peril at some level, or I think really needs some work enough that I wanna get this book, go to that workshop, or go to that therapist. You should care about that. And if your partner doesn't, they're saying essentially, it's about me, not we. Uh, I think we have to, when we get into a relationship, we have to by and large go from a we-centered way of thinking to a, a me-centered way of thinking to a we-centered way of thinking. And if your partner's not willing to do that for you, then what else aren't they going to be willing to do? It's a great um, point there, absolutely. And you know, mm-hmm. sometimes we, mm-hmm. um, you know, it can we can make it more complicated than it really is, and we sort of try to make excuses mm-hmm. for the person, don't we? And say, well, oh, they're just having a hard time. Mm-hmm. But I really agree with what you're saying that ultimately, if something mm-hmm. is important enough for me to say, look, I think we need to work on this, and I'm addressing mm-hmm. my partner, and they're not really interested, or you know, their focus is elsewhere, mm-hmm. then that's already telling me something quite powerful. But I guess the question if you're is, listening. You know, am I listening to that thing, you know, or do I want to yeah. avoid it, ignore it? Because I guess, mm-hmm. you know, we either confront it and accept the reality of that situation or we just stay in denial, really. Yeah, and you got one oar in the water and the image is is an apt one, right? Like the, you're you're paddling in a circle going over the same ground over and over again, never getting anywhere because their oar is not in the water. Sure, absolutely. I, I had a woman come to me very recently, <clears throat> and it was exactly your question. And she was doing all the work, and she was trying to, you know, soft soap everything for her husband and try to ease him into the process because he was so reticent. And I just finally said to her, you know, what are you doing? Are you going to go through your entire life? This is like an intake call. Lasted way, way too long, and I was giving her, you know, therapy on essentially on the phone, and I was saying, you know, you you need to you need to have enough self worth to know that you're worth fighting for, and if he's not willing to fight for this relationship and do better, there's a lot of questions. Now, maybe what you need is a pro marriage therapist. There are those out there. There are therapists who will fight for the marriage and the relationship, pretty much no matter what. I don't ascribe to that type of therapy. Um, and so at that point, perhaps my, my response, my response to her was, I, I don't think I'm your guy because you're going to hear things. I'm going to hear, you're going to hear the truth, at least as far as I see it. I think I owe you that much. I see. That's an re- interesting concept. I've never heard of that specifically in that term, like a pro marriage therapist where what I'm hearing there, Len, yeah, is, you know, their goal is yeah. to save your relationship, no matter what hell they mm-hmm. see in front of them, they're going to try and work something out. Is that? Yeah, am I understanding that? Yeah, it's it's probably it's probably kind of U.S. based, as you say that it's 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 probably kind of Christian. You know, r- r- there's some probably some re- religious relig- religiosity in that, um, and so what you'll find here, at least in the states, and maybe you have it over there too, is you'll have you know Christian based or you know faith based uh, therapists who are, and they'll they'll post it in their Psychology Today bio. I am a pro marriage therapist. <clears throat> I don't, you don't have to be um, religiously based, but I think a lot of them are. And that is, you know, I'm going to fight for that marriage and the sanctity of the marriage bond under God and all of that. Yeah. That's not 
what I do. And no. I think it's why I have, yeah, people, you know, I have a line out the door. I see. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. It's useful. And mm-hmm. maybe I should uh, update my bio to say that I'm not a pro marriage. Not that I'm against <laughs> marriage. I guess that's worth clarifying as well, but it's, uh, mm-hmm. there's a specific meaning behind that, isn't there, to, uh, to yeah. understand. So mm-hmm. thanks for clarifying that for us. Um, of course. I'd love to hear, Lair, as well, a bit about your personal journey, you know, to come to be doing what you're doing, being so passionate, having, mm-hmm. you know, put so much great material yeah. out there in this area of relationships. I'd love for you to share sure. a bit of your own journey into that. Yeah, so uh, started a long time ago. This is, you know, obviously so much of this is retrospective. I didn't realize what I was doing as I was doing it. Um, I'll put that caveat on it. But why, my mom was 15 when she had me. And... Um, you know, I was born into what could only be described as abject poverty. Um, you know, we had no heat, no running water. Uh, I, I tell you this only to give you the sort of the, 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 the actual socioeconomic set that I was coming from. Yeah. She ultimately married my father, um, you know, uh, having been thrown out of high school and all that, because that's what they did to girls back then um, in the States anyway. Um, taking away the things she needed the most. And and so I, I tell you all that to say, I didn't see a lot of loving and connective relationships around me, save like one of my aunts who has been married forever. But most of my aunts and uncles and my mom included married and were in relationships multiple times. And my mom did remarry. She was with a man for 16 years, most of my childhood. They didn't, you know, they, they loved each other, but they weren't in love and they have rarely liked each other and ultimately divorced. She remarried again. <clears throat> and that marriage is some facsimile of the same. And so I found myself seeing movies, hearing poems and songs that depicted this ideal love. And there's something inside of me wanted to have that. Um, why wouldn't you? It looked amazing on all the shows and the movies and the songs that you listen to and, you know, wrench your heart. And so I found myself as a young man um, really trying to recreate a lot of that, those things that I saw, the things I didn't see in my life. I wanted love and I wanted connection. So I was a serial monogamist, you know, and so I'd have these long relationships. I was constantly looking for the one. And then when I became a, a, a clinician, I was, I was in my internship. I went to my, um, my supervisor, my new supervisor, and she said, you know, tell me about your ideal client. And the thing that came out of me sort of organically is like, I think I really want to work with couples. It seems really challenging in a really good way. Mm-hmm. And it sort of came out of me in that moment. I said, I, I want to be able to help couples find the thing that I could, that I never saw. And, um, that was sort of the beginning of it. And so I started studying all those modalities, those Western clinical modes that we have. And, and that's where I was working with couples. And again, things were going famously in office. It was out of the office. Like before they they got to the elevator banks in my building, the stuff we were working on was going off the rails and that was really frustrating. And so I went to my peers, I went to teachers, I went to supervisors, and finally I went to my mentor in school who is this very, very famous marriage and family therapist. Her name is Dr. Evan Ember Black. She's been on Oprah a couple of times, that kind of famous. And I was lucky enough to have her as a mentor um, for my um, for my capstone. And I said to her, I said, you know, what is going on here? Why isn't this working with couples? And the thing that everyone else has said is what she said, which was welcome to couples therapy, where you're going to shoot maybe about 50 to 55% if you're good. Uh, but by and large, you're going to fall into the bell curve of people of, you know, people are just not going to really be 
are going to, they're not going to work out and, or there's, they're going to keep stay together, but they're not going to be happy. And I was like, that can't be your answer. And her response to me, and I'll never forget it. She said, well, if you don't like it, go figure something out for yourself. <laughs> and I thought, I said to her, I said, you can do that. And I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I was essentially a graduate student at that point. I didn't know anything. And, um, she said, well, yeah. And I, I don't know how much she actually meant it at the time. Um, but that's what I did. And so rather than dive in and become like a, this therapist or this type of therapist or that type of therapist, I really started looking. I did what Elvin, Elvin Simrod said in one of his books. He said, you know, let your clients be your textbooks. And I listened to the words of uh, Carl Rogers who said, every time you're, any client that comes through the door, they're looking for something they didn't get. Let them tell you what that is. If you're listening, they'll tell you. And so I let them tell me what it was they needed. And so that informed the different modalities that I sort of pulled in um, to create the, the method of, of working with couples that I, that, I, that I have in the practice of love, the, the book that I wrote. Um, and it's mindfulness. Um, mindfulness, then you're mindful of what part of you is coming to the table because we look at the brain as a single organism, but it's actually very compartmentalized. And if you show up in the wrong part of your brain to that conversation that we were talking about, it's not going to go well. It's like using the wrong app on your phone. Um, it's like trying to use Instagram when you're trying to send an email. You can't do that. Um, I then looked at narrative therapy, which hasn't gotten a lot of fanfare, but you know, uh, David Epson and Michael White back in the 80s when they founded narrative therapy said some really important things. Like we prune our narratives, right? We select information that supports our prevailing narrative and we deselect information that does not. That seemed important to me. Like if we're up there doing that and we're editing, from a particular part of self, well, pretty soon we're telling stories about our partners that some of it's true and a lot of it's not. Some of it's compassionate and fair and a lot of it's not. And then I start, you know, diving into the mechanics of all of it, that our thoughts become feelings, our feelings become our experiences, our experiences inform our belief systems. And so narrative, the narrative aspect of my book is really important. And then from there I went on to um, use some of the stuff that I, I, I uh, wrote about in my in my uh, thesis which was emotionally focused therapy and the work of sue johnson and les greenberg because emotions are really important and from there you know sue johnson said something really important she said clients and therapists usually only go right to the waterline they, they, they need to dive below the surface and what's below the surface of how we feel loved and cared about is our wounding and we need to know what that is and so in my mm -hmm. book i really f help people ferret out um what's like yeah i know i'm a you know, if we're using love languages, I'm a two, three, but why am I a two, three? Well, I'm a two, three because I never felt like I mattered. And when you do the two or the three, it makes me feel like I matter. Your partner should know that, you know, like I felt like I got the, the, the teacher's addition to my relationship when I walked, when I was reading about my partner, I, I didn't realize at the time, but I found her character style and her wounding is the world is an often unsafe place because Frankly, her mother was border, had borderline personality disorder. And so the person who was supposed to keep her the safest in the world didn't. And so I found that. I found out what her wounding is. And was, I was able to not heal it for her, but I could hold space for that. And I unpacked that in the book. And then lastly is the thing we've been talking about, which is personal responsibility. Meaning if you don't take responsibility for your mindfulness, for your parts, for your narrative, and choosing and loving your partner the way they need to be chosen and loved, how are we doing? probably not great mm. and so that's the yeah. the meat of it i know I, I know i've said a lot sorry 
That's great, love. Appreciate that. And um, I was just going to ask you about, just going back to your story, you know, how from growing mm -hmm. up and the role models that you had and the relationships that you saw around you, I'm just curious mm -hmm. around like the narratives that you may have picked up, you know, during that journey and how you've kind mm -hmm. of reshaped them over the years in the relationships that you've had. Well, I can tell you, you know, flatly, um, the upbringing I had will give you certain messages, right? Um, I say we're all looking for four things. And if you can come up with a fifth one, I'm happy to entertain it. And that is, am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? Am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? And coming up the way I came up, I didn't matter. I mean, I mattered to my mom. Uh, but I didn't matter to my father. I didn't matter to my stepfather. Um, you know, the world was kind of unsafe. And um, yeah, and there's an aspect of me too that felt like I wasn't enough. I always felt like the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. Mm. And so, you know, we drag all, I drag, I drug all of those with me, those particular narratives. And I would notice them as they would come up. Like when I went to my internship, as an example, um, I was at this posh Madison Avenue private practice, you know, look, and, and some, the, the, the wounded kid in me was looking for the service entrance. Like I get to come here and do this work with these people and wear nice clothes. And, you know, I, I'm not, I'm being paid for what I think, not what I can do. Um, that was a hard narrative for me to, 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 to reauthor for the first year that I was there. I kept telling my wife, I think they're going to fire me. I think they're going to fire me. And she's like, I don't think that's what's happening. Cause I was killing it with my clients and doing really well. And they seemed to like me, but the story that I was playing in my head was one from old. And this is how, I'm, and I, I missed it. I missed all the lovely, wonderful people and things and the way they thought of me and held me, um, until the last day when they said all sorts of wonderful things and gave me these you know, wonderful parting uh, things to take with me. I missed all of that because of my narrative yeah, of, of I'm the kid from the wrong side of the tracks. And th the other narrative is everybody leaves. Um, that's another one. And, you know, so that in my relationship with my wife of, you know, she's been, we've been together 20 years now. Um, obviously that narrative is not that, right? Like she didn't leave. Um, but I had to throughout the years sort of, touch in mindfully and notice my thoughts that like everybody leaves does everybody leave she's not leaving and so there's an aspect of this and that i do in the work with clients and i unpack it in the book where we begin to look at our narratives we say them out loud we write them down and we begin to reauthor these narratives mm, i see right? yeah. yeah do you come across situations Lair, with uh, with clients when you when you start engaging with a couple and maybe does it ever happen where you say, well, actually, they're quite lovely people, you know, they could get on great, but maybe one of them or both of them is running a narrative that is kind of spoiling things a bit? Do you ever come across that? Yeah, all, the, all the time, all the time, because, you know, that narrative is often whispered from the wounded child within us that's feeling the vulnerability of this love relationship, right? Yeah. And so... In this example, one partner is there and there in my example, you know, my, my wife's there and loving me the way she did and does. And, you know, some part of me is whispering, everybody leaves, you know, and mm. it's like, no, everybody doesn't leave. And so very often I'll, I'll kind of look at it and I'll assess it and I'll go, you know, I really want to, I want to talk about something called narrative, the narrative, like the stories that you're, the way you're thinking about your partner, the way you're thinking about your relationship. And you'll see the look come across their face of acknowledgement of, 
oh, I do that. I, you know, I, I say um, awful things sometimes about this person and, you know, what we end up getting to and in the example that you offered is this person's actually a pretty good person. I just say some not nice things to, to, to steal myself to the, to the vulnerability of, of love. Mm. And my narrative helps me do that. And so we might employ that from an inner critic or a protective side of self that, that just picks and picks and picks out all of the not good. And, and you know, that's that pruning process that Epson and White talked about, which is to say I, I prune out all the good, keeping the bad because I need to keep a safe distance so that I don't feel love sting. Or if you did leave, then I might be, I might in some version of this feel less sad or, or destroyed by this. I, I hope that answered yeah. your question. It does, Leigh. Yeah, I love that insight. It's, it's like almost that narrative is there for a good reason. You know, we've developed it at some point in time. Oh, yeah, it's it, all protective. Where, it, where mm-hmm. it really made sense at some point in time, but then acknowledging that maybe it's not working as well anymore. It could even be causing some problems. And um, I'd love to make the link there, actually, across there, if you would, to mindfulness, you know, and how mindfulness is important mm-hmm. if we're going to do yeah. that pruning exercise. Sure. So I say that, you know, when I was trying to come up with this model of working, I was like, how do these fit together? What's a good image that I can use? And I, I always thought mindfulness was going to be the common denominator, like the one that the, all the others sat upon. As it turns out, it's personal responsibility. And I'll tell you why in a minute. And so I have mindfulness, parts, narrative, and choosing those first four practices. And then I draw a big old line under that. And then I put personal responsibility. Now, personal responsibility is the common denominator practice because if you don't take responsibility for these things for the first four it's never going to work having said that to your question mindfulness is the skeleton key universal remote and all access pass to any practice we want to um, employ or habit we want to change or thought we want to reauthor in the case of the narrative and so we have on average uh, about 60,000 thoughts on any given day our brain is geared toward safety and automation. It goes on, the brain's default mode network is to automate because through our various ports, we're taking in about 400 billion bits of information per second, okay? All of that, we can't do that. We'd overload, we'd pass out probably. We have to automate. And so we, we go through the world and we're just, we're just trying, and if something is not new, we will just automate it. I mean, we really think about it. It's just sort of happening. It's sort of happening unconsciously, as we say. Mindfulness allows us to stop, push pause, and go, wait a minute. What was that? What was that thought? And so everything goes, er, stops. And you go, oh, I just thought, huh, there's my partner who left the milk out again. Who's that no account SOB who left the milk out again for the second time this week, forgetting, of course, that they work really, really hard and we're up late or, you know, we're pulling two jobs or going back to school. You know, like when we stop and we mindfully assess our narrative, we can go, okay, wait, wait a minute. There are other things that I've pruned out here for safety. And I might want to add some of those clippings back in because some of the clippings that we've clipped away for safety are actual gold. And through the process of stopping and pushing pause with mindfulness and assessing our thoughts and feelings, we can go, you know what, that wasn't fair, or that was fair. I should probably talk to that person about this. And so mindfulness becomes this really, really important ramp to, or like I said, all access pass, skeleton key, universal remote, 
to all these other practices. I don't care what you're doing. If you don't have self-awareness, you're not going to be able to, to, to change much, I don't think. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's a great, great point. And I'd love to link that back to what you said earlier, Lem, about how when you consulted with a previous mentor and you were saying, well, how come the success rates here are not as good as we'd like them to be? Or, you know, people have a good experience in the session, but then they go home and revert back to the challenges they have. Um, what what do you think is really going on there? I'd love, you, I'd love to get your thoughts on when people struggle with this kind of therapy, let's say it either goes on forever and ever and ever and they never quite finish it or it just seems mm-hmm. to fizzle mm-hmm. out or maybe they, they come for a while and they still they still seem to have a similar challenge. What do you think is going on for those people? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously going to speak with, uh, I'm going to paint with a broad stroke, I guess, on this. But I, th- I think, and it, it speaks to why I called the book what I called it and the, the angle that I take with with my approach to, to couples, that relationships have fallen into the bin of things we should just know how to do. You know, there are things that like that, like buying a car, getting insurance, uh, getting a mortgage, dealing with credit cards. We, we're supposed to know how to do this. There's not, at least when I was coming up, there were no classes in high school that taught any of that. There was no coursework in college that taught any of that, how to file your taxes. But, you know, we can do algebra. Um, and I think relationships fall into that bin as well. We should just know how to do this. And we don't. We don't really know how to commingle my childhood wounding with your childhood wounding. It goes back to what Harville Hendricks said, right? Like, we are, we are inexplicably drawn into the arms of a romantic partner who will, by their very nature, recapitulate our childhood wounding. But for a very good reason. For healing. Well, we get to the conjuring up the childhood wounding part, and that's what the arguments are all about, but no one knows how to hold the wounding in, in, in a healing way because I'm so activated. And so, look, mindfulness is pretty new to the game here in the West, and the Western mind is not the, the Eastern mind. And, um, and so we're out there trying to use, oh, I got to remember to use you know that or... I'm supposed to remember that this person is stonewalling or well you can't do that if you're not aware of yourself you can't do that if you don't know what part of yourself is up because if I have been hurt or wounded by something my partner says very very quickly my protector part comes up I have to be aware of that otherwise I'm in that compartment of my brain just like Jung talked about right uh, and I'm in that in that version of my brain and I see everyone and everything as a reason to defend myself. If I'm unaware of that and I'm not practicing awareness, most of what we get our, our we get people most of what people do is they look externally, right? And that's sort of human nature. What are you doing? What do you, what did you just say? Rather than what did I just think? What am I about to do? What am I about to say? Is that fair? Is that compassionate? How do I want to be able to remember this moment? We don't think that way. We are capitalists by and large. And if you're an American, forget about it. We try to win everything. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We're trying to win. And what couples are, they're, they're shocked when I say there can be no competition in relationships. This is a zero-sum game. If your partner loses, you lose. If you lose, your partner loses. The relationship loses. We don't think that way. 
And so this is about rewiring so many of our habitual ways of thinking. And so people go off into the world thinking, well, we're supposed to compete to win. We're supposed to compete for the victim position. I'm supposed to vanquish this person in this fight. Yes, of course. And when we walk away and she feels terrible, um, doesn't really want to touch me, uh, we're shocked and the fight continues. Absolutely. Such a great insight. I I love the way you link kind of cultural aspects there and maybe it's slightly different over there in the states but we certainly have that here you know there's plenty in our mm-hmm, cultural mm-hmm. background which encourages us to compete to win Whereas- oh forget about the australians too i've got australians in my practice and they're just as bad if not worse oh they, yeah okay so it really does yeah so i get that and then you know with those sort of attitudes we then try and enter into a relationship what sort of challenges would a couple have or what would it look like if we're too much into that competing mindset, I guess, with our partner? Oh, man. I mean, we have all matter of calamity at that point, right? Like for me, when I see competition on that level, and so people will say, so what, I can't have like a a friendly, competitive game of Monopoly? I'm like, no, not really. Because again, we're sowing the seeds of there with a victor, there must be a vanquished. Mm. And um, I remember we were, my wife and I were years ago now, we were going to go surfing for the first time. And I remember on the way there thinking, you know, I'm going to probably kill at this sport. Uh, Pretty good athlete. And then I got thinking about her. I'm like, she's pretty good athlete too. What if she's better than me? And I felt this competitive thing come up in me, like, well, I can't let, you know, I mean, if she gets up on the board more than me, it's going to look, I'm going to look kind of silly. Blah, blah, blah. And then finally I stopped myself and I went, what are you doing? Wouldn't it be better if it was just a celebratory day of like, hey, I got up on the board, you got up on the board, there were some laughs, we did well, we did bad, but we had this amazing time. And you know what? That's the keel I took. And it was connective and it was loving and we both surfed to this day and it's changed our lives. Mm. Um, it could have gone very differently. And I see to your question, these little moments, these seemingly little moments go off the rails and you, you'll, you'll see it in snide back and forth comments. You'll see it in, you know, well, you know, why didn't you put your dishes away? Well, why didn't you vacuum like you said? You, it can be any of that. And for me, you're, you're, you're sowing the seeds of resentment, right? Like mm. this, this, this life in this world for me is hard enough to then have to come home and, 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 you know, passive aggressively or aggressively compete with my partner who is supposed to be my loving support and me, hers, for what? Some perceived victory? It's a name for me. And I think, you know, some of our friends think that we're a little Pollyanna-ish because we're so, we're, we're not saccharine sweet by any stretch of the imagination, but we support each other. She knows that I have her back and she knows, and I know she's got mine. And that's something when you know that you don't have to compete for every single thing that it from time to time, here's a good example. When I was writing my book, she's an amazing editor and really smart and a great clinician in her own right. And so I had her reading it and she's a better, she's, she's just a better like technical writer than I am. I, I try to write how I speak and that has its place, but she would say things like, well, you know, this, this and really doesn't work. And I'm like, that's my and. That's mine. I, it's my writing. It's my thoughts. These are my, th- and I found myself like getting, you know, like competitive and taking umbrage with the, that she would question. And then I took a breath and I noticed my thoughts and feelings, took a mindful breath. I noticed what part of me was up. 
And I thought to myself, well, what if I didn't compete and I just listened? And I came to like, oh shit, she might be the smartest person in this room. And she was for these aspects. Consequently, I wrote a book that I could have never written had it not been for her, her, her hand in it, her helping me move things around and helping me write more accurately so that people could read it and understand how I speak. She was yeah. a genius in that regard. I would have never, if I was competing for that and, which I was, by the way, um, I would have, I wouldn't have written a good book. Of course. That's and nice. I wonder how often that happens. Yeah. It's a great example there, absolutely, where you can sort of win together, you know, that bring the best out in each yeah. other. It sounds like what you're describing is a great example. Of well, that, that opportunity is always there to win together, as you mm. said. Mm. Absolutely. Fantastic. And yeah, I wanted to ask um, as well, we, we've touched around mindfulness and personal responsibility. I just wanted to ask, get your thoughts on whether you think that with the mindfulness, there's any danger in the mindfulness in terms of where we can almost get very aware but that we use that awareness in a way that isn't necessarily positive or helpful. Any thoughts around that or how you can maybe work around that? Do you have an example of how that, I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm flummoxed just to, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the example I had was, you know, where someone could, let's say, get very mindful and be very aware and present and focused on what they're doing, but then they use that awareness mm -hmm. in a way that could be a bit negative, even manipulative, controlling. Um, I, I just wonder if you think there's anything intrinsically about the mindfulness that sort of works or whether it needs to be supplemented by something else as well. You know, for me, as you say it, and, and this is not a, a fully formed thought because I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Um, but, uh, you know, I think if, if someone's using... I don't know that necessarily know that they're using mindfulness, right? They might be using the lingo and the language of mindfulness because if they were being, or if they were able to be really mindful, then they would notice that they're being manipulative, right? Like that would, that would be the height of mindfulness in that moment. Like I noticed that I want to use these words and this, this way of being to kind of push this person into this thing or to do the thing I want them to do. The height of mindfulness is to notice that thought, to notice that feeling and going and saying, wow, I'm a human being. I had a really not great thought there. Choosing what you do with that. Um, so to, to, to your question, I, I don't think anyone who is being manipulative consciously uh, uh, is actually being particularly mindful. I see. That's my, that's my answer right now, yeah. Okay, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. It's just a, a thought that came to mind there. So, uh, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I'd yeah. love to just um, come back to a couple of the issues we've talked about. And I'd love to get down to some like specific, concrete stuff that people listening can take away if they're already listening here and saying, well, mm -hmm. this sounds like something I really need to do. I really want to be more mindful, take more personal responsibility, and all the things that we've been mm -hmm. touching on. Let's talk through mm -hmm. a few things that we can actually start putting into place if we want to start sure. working on this stuff and dealing mm -hmm. with the conflict we mm -hmm. might be having. Yeah. You want me to just kind of riff on that? Uh, yeah, just a, a few points, maybe like a top yeah. three uh, points, you know, that people can take away and start to work on or implement. So, you know, look, y your relationship, I think our lives need to be a practice. If you want to do anything well, you practice at it. And so this mean this needs time and attention. And so I counsel all of my my clients to... Take time 
Uh, it's the best thing you can do for yourself. Take time for yourself whenever you can. Read read books like Eckhart Tolle's book on mindfulness of, of the power of now. Gary Zukoff's uh, got some great books out there as well. Um, there are uh, the, the Seed of the Soul by Michael Singer. Sit with your journal. Practice that that mindful pause and notice what you're thinking and feeling. You can do a three minute breathing space three or four times a day where you set a, set your watch or your clock or your phone to go off and and just sit and just notice. Because I always say the hardest thing about mindfulness is is remembering to do it. Um, it doesn't take a lot. And the and the practices that I offer in the book um, are broken up into what they are why they're important, how to use them or how I use them. And then there's uh, exercises in, in at the end of every one of those parts, every one of those practices that you can use. And what I did is I, I geared them so that they wouldn't be hard to do daily. You don't have to get together with your partner. They're really individualized. And so more to your point, stopping, pushing, pause, and just noticing that's all you have to do. You don't have to sit on a, on a meditation cushion for an inordinate amount of time to become mindful. You just have to start noticing. Ellen Langer out of Harvard said that years ago. She's written 22 papers and 11 books on the subject since the 70s. She said, just stop and notice. If you want to, if you want to make your, your relationship more mindful, when you walk through the door tonight or next time you see your partner, notice four new things. You're immediately in the moment and you're immediately mindful with that person. If you want your communication to be better, stop trying to make I statements or be, be nonviolent in your communication and start paying attention mindfully to the part of you that's showing up and get to know the aspects of yourself. Like, yeah, I'm in a part of myself that's very critical. I'm in a part of myself that, that is designed to defend me. And when we do that, we begin to get separation from our parts and we can become um, more uh, in, our, in our wiser, more um, collaborative self. And start noticing your narrative. Write them down, um, hopefully in a private journal, because sometimes they can be pretty raw. And then ask yourself, this, if you're not going to write them down, just notice it. Notice what you're thinking about your partner and ask yourself, is this fair? Is it true? Is it compassionate? Would I want to say it out loud to them in this moment? So those are some things you can do right out the gate uh, to start practicing right now. Like you could stop listening to this podcast and go notice three things about your partner right now and notice the difference. Fantastic. I love that immediate action there for everyone listening, I hope. And um, another action I hope everyone will take is also to get hold of your book, which I know you've referenced a couple of oh. times that I'm really excited yeah. about getting hold of. And I hope everyone listening is as well. Um, but yeah, tell us a bit more about the book and also how people can keep in touch with you. So people can keep in touch with me on Instagram. Uh, my name, Lair Torrent, Holistic Therapist. I'm on there a good bit. And uh, at my website, lairtorrent.com. Um, you know, the, the book is, is designed to be like a toolkit. Um, and if you practice one or two of the things uh, in any given situation, you're going to notice it right the ship pretty quickly. Um, you know, so if you, you notice things are going off the rails with your partner, just Drop into your body and notice what you're thinking and feeling. Notice your narrative. What if you were practicing personal responsibility in this moment? Um, and you, you know, again, you don't have to practice them all in unison. They are sort of lined up one, two, three, four, five, but they they dovetail on each other. They sort of um, are recursive and fall in on each other. And so, if you're practicing one, one will beget the other. And I really wanted to create something that was 
user friendly, something that could be, uh, you know, uh, powerful enough to be used in the therapy room by therapists, but also simple enough for us to use out in our lives when we're activated. Because when we're activated and, you know, um, the brain goes into fight flight because that's what it does when we get angry or upset. And we're thinking about either extricating ourselves from the room or stonewalling them or, or fighting. We have to have a method that brings us back to the ground and, and, and back to self. Um, these five practices in the book, I think, do that. Uh, I designed them as much for myself as I did for clients and people reading. Amazing. Well, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciated you, your time and insights there. So great to connect with you. Okay, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining us. And please remember to subscribe and to leave us a review. Who could you share this episode with that needs to hear this message? Share this episode and remember that the quality of your relationship determines the quality of your life. See you on the next episode.